Good morning, everyone. Sorry, I'm just getting myself set up here. Uh, so I at least look like I know what I'm doing. We'll see how that works out for me. So about two years ago, since Lucy and I, Lucy and I last came here, um, Verity was a bump at the time, and we, we received some amazing prayers for her, which we're often reminded of. She's so full of character and life, and so it's great to be able to come back here uh, to share with you this morning, um, and uh, yeah, be amongst friends, uh, where there's no judgment, right? None whatsoever. But there is roast preacher for lunch, uh, if, if you require it. Um, so, last time I came here, I was the pastor at Ashill Baptist Church, down the A358 towards Ilminster. Uh, now, I couldn't be further away from that um, in terms of what I'm doing. I'm, a, I'm an associate minister in a church in a city, at Pinhoe Road in Exeter. And I've seen someone who used to come to Pinhoe Road, but is still in Exeter. Good morning. Um, and so, we're in an, in an encouraging time at the moment at Pinhoe Road. We've just explored our vision together. Um, we're excited about some new ministries starting, uh, starting later in the year. Um, and I think, I think, Nigel, you can hold me to this, I think we're going to start our building project in the new year. Um, so please pray for us so that actually happens. Nigel won't believe it until he sees it. I don't think many of us will either. So, this morning, Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 4, 7. I'd like to begin by asking you a question. Do you remember where you were on Friday the 29th of April 2011? Do you even know why that date is significant? Some murmurings. It was a day on which a postman, a pub owner, along with a shopkeeper and his wife were invited to a wedding. This isn't the setup for a joke. These are real people who were invited to a real wedding. Ordinary people who were invited to a wedding. Ordinary people like you and I, although we wouldn't have expected to be invited to this wedding, and I'm sure they wouldn't have expected it either. So whose wedding is it that I'm talking about? Can anyone remember now? Correct, Kate Middleton and William Windsor, the prince and second in line to the throne. This was an event watched globally and in space by an estimated two billion people. And so it's likely now that you remember where you were, whether you were watching it and part of that two billion people or not. Whilst Kate and Wills were keen for their big day to be a people's wedding, due to the very nature of who they were and what was going on that day, That was never going to happen. It was more than your average people's wedding. 24 hours before, Kate Middleton, on that Thursday the 28th of April, was just Kate Middleton. She was a nobody. By the end of the ceremony on that Friday, she was the Duchess of Cambridge. And by virtue of her marriage to a future king, she was an heir to the throne as well. She had been enfolded into the royal family and had taken on a new identity. An heir is someone who can claim a legal right to an inheritance. And we have become heirs by our faith in Christ. Our identity is changed and so are our lives. Um, We metamorphosize, um, as Ewan pointed out for us this morning. And so that's what we're going to be looking at together this morning, about how our identity is changed. As we look at that, we're going to see how God is a God who unites people, a, a God who keeps his promises to people, a God who adopts people into his family, and uh, that we have a God who is generous, and that all this has an implication on how we relate to him. So we're going to work through this systematically together, so you can have your Bibles open and see where we're going. We're going to begin in verse uh, 3, uh, verse 26 in chapter 3. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. The phrase in Christ is used over 200 times in the New Testament, or its equivalent. In him, in the beloved, in love, in Jesus, in Christ. 
All of these things are used over and over again, especially by Paul. And so we know that this is significant for us then. It's important for us to take note of this being in Christ. Because it seems that there's a suggestion that if we are not in Christ, we are missing out on something. Clearly, in this passage, Paul talks about the need to be in Christ. To be those who are united. To be those who are adopted. To be those who are heirs. And so, those of us or those who aren't in Christ, are missing out on something. We have this great thing, this great privilege of being in Christ. And so by being in Christ, one of those privileges is that Paul tells us that we are all sons of God. This is deliberately engendered language, okay? Uh, I was chatting to friends last night, and uh, their mother said to them, don't get too angry with your your sort of your feminism. It's okay, I'm sure there's a reason that it says what it says. And the reason, there is a reason that it says what it says, and I will tell you about that shortly we will see just how amazing God is in in overcoming culture and context. But Paul reminds us that that this being in faith is, uh, this, this being in Christ is all about our faith. It's not based on who we are, what we've done, what potential we have to achieve something in the future. It's all about what Jesus has done for us. It's all about our faith in him, trusting in him to have done the work that we could never do so that we can become sons and daughters of God. We, of course, know that our our faith is fruitful because we can't have a faith without works. Because when we have been uh, adopted into God's family, we can only respond by being gracious, by being loving, by doing things to bless other people and to share our faith with them. Your holiday club is a great example of that. And so we move into verse uh, uh, 27. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. Here Paul is talking about baptism as a visual external, outward response to something that has happened inside of the believer. Baptism doesn't save us, but it is a sign of the fact that we have changed allegiances. The world can see that we are different now. We've made a declaration of something that's happened inside of us by the Spirit of God entering in. We have been transformed. And so, in our baptism, we die to ourselves. We die with Christ and we're raised to new life as new people We've left the old self behind. We are indeed those new creations that Ewan spoke about this morning. It's always encouraging when we're on the same track with things, even though we've prepared counties apart, right? And so Paul talks about putting on Christ, being clothed with Christ. And there are some implications uh, in this for us. Being clothed with Christ. Our clothing, now don't judge me, okay? I, I knew as soon as I got up on the stage and started talking about clothing, there'd be a little murmur and a little bit of a joke. But... What we wear identifies us. The brands or not brands on our shirts and our shoes, they identify us. They tell us, they tell people something about us. It distinguishes us. It separates us. I haven't got shoes on, if if you're looking. Um, It distinguishes us and it can divide us. Our clothing can divide us. And this is not where we find our identity as Christians. Our identity is to be clothed with Christ. And when we put on those clothes, we're talking about proximity to us. I guarantee you that the person in this room with the worst understanding of exceptional, uh, acceptable personal space okay, is not as close to you right now or over coffee as your clothes are to you. They're literally in proximity to your skin. They're so close. Okay? And so we have that clothing on us. We have it close. And there's, there's something there about being close to Jesus and carrying Jesus with us wherever we go. And of course, we know that he's there, but I think sometimes we need to make extra effort to remember that and to acknowledge that in everything that we're doing, that Jesus is close to us. And so by having him so close to us, 
We look like Christ to those around us. We imitate him and the good things that he demonstrated and taught and instructed. We look like Christ to those around us. And finally, this is the best bit. Because we are clothed in Christ, God sees us as his children because when he looks at us, he sees his child. That is a good thing this morning. Amen? And so remember, Kate Middleton, on Thursday the 28th of April 2011, she was just Kate Middleton. By Friday the 29th of April, she was the Duchess of Cambridge. For all intents and purposes, her external appearance hadn't changed. Yeah, she'd got a bit dressed up, but we can all do that occasionally. She'd been transformed. She wasn't a peasant anymore, like us. I'd rather be a peasant, it's okay. She'd been transformed into someone who was, is one day going to be the Queen. And I've cooked for her. True story, I have, yeah, yeah. I thought I'd have talked about that here before. I literally talk about it wherever I go, because it sounds cool. <laughs> I cooked for Kate Middleton. Ask me about it over coffee later. Her identity has been changed. From the, not from the inside out, though, like the way that God changes us. And so here, we come to verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We have been baptised with Jesus. Through our faith, we have been made children of God. We have him clothed on us. And so now, all the distinctions that we have in the world have been removed. Our God is a uniting God. Even though some of those divisions might still be there, They've been removed in Christ. We're all equal. Isn't that an amazing thing? Do you you know, if I wasn't a Christian, there would be no need for me to be in this room with you. Although, as Christians, you'd probably tell me there was a need. You know where I'm going with this, though. I would have had nothing in common with any of you. And so I wouldn't have been here. And the truth is, there are so many things that we don't have in common together this morning. But that which unites us is greater than that which divides us. You know, one of my best friends at college was a Portsmouth fan, and I'm a Southampton fan. That's what it looks like for us to be united together in Christ. I can't stand the football team that he supports, or when he talks about it, but we're united together in Christ. I was chatting to a friend uh, who's a missionary in Kenya. They go to a church called One Tribe, and there are a a certain number of expats, but there are people from different tribes. I said, they all get on? And he said, yeah, of course they do, because they've got something in common that draws them together and that they can get on. How amazing is that? God unites us. He's a uniting God. And so in Paul's day, the world was deeply divided in a number of ways, something that we can probably quite easily picture if we just put on the news. We can see how divided our country is and how divided our world is. Racially, the Jews hated the Gentiles. They considered them to be dogs, but the Gentiles didn't really like the Jews either. The context of this letter being written is that there was a belief amongst some of the Jewish Christians that they were a better sort of Christian than the Gentiles because they'd reached some higher level, that they were, they were better Paul is glad to point out their error. Socially, we see a division uh, between the classes, particularly here seen in slaves and free men. And of particular note, in Paul's day, women were amongst the most marginalised people in society, often despised and treated like second-class citizens, pushed to the edges. They were at the mercy of men who could provide for them and support them. Should that relationship with their husband break down or end due to, to death, The woman would have had nobody to support her. She would have been left an outcast. She'd have probably had to turn to a life of of slavery or uh, sexual slavery so that she could provide for herself. She would have been utterly hopeless. And so Paul here is telling us that we are united together in Christ. And when we are, the worldly divisions that we can see are removed because the gospel straddles those, those divisions. 
We are so fused into one body as Christians that it's as if the dividing differences don't exist to us any longer. We can all come equally to to God and enjoy that relationship with him. Of course, we have to remember that there are distinctions between men and women. There are distinctions between the rich and the poor. But our in-Christness addresses the sin of snobbery, hostility, exploitation and prejudice, which hangs over our human relationships. We are all raised to the same level of saving privilege. The Jews, the Jewish Christians, they weren't better than the Gentile Christians. The poor believer is as fully united with Jesus and as fully a participant in his life as the rich believer. How amazing is that? That's where the gospel, where where Jesus is so different. There's no hierarchy involved here. And so if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If we believe by faith, then we know that we belong to Christ and that therefore we become one of the innumerable offspring that was promised to Abraham all those thousands of years ago. We live in a world now where it's hard to trust people at their word. Politicians are a great example of that. They say one thing and they do something completely different. Even our our family and our friends, many of us will have experiences of broken promises, but our God is a promise-keeping God. The promise begins in Genesis chapter 3. Eve is asked the most dangerous question in all of history. Did God really say? She was given the opportunity to subject God's word to her opinion about it, and the spiral downwards has continued. But God made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that he would one day send someone who would redeem us, save us. It's the first time we hear about this promise of the gospel. And then there are numerous promises throughout the Old Testament made to people like, uh, where's my list? Abraham, Jacob, Moses and the entire nation of Israel. Promises are made. Some of these things, some of these promises are things which seem impossible. Those who are elderly and advanced in years are told that they will have children. And God does these things because he can and because he promised that he would. Throughout our rebellion and idolatry, God is faithful where we are faithless. And then he sends the one that he promised he would send. Jesus comes at just the right time. And he comes with more promises for us. The gift of the Holy Spirit, fullness of life, peace with God and peace from God, resurrection and eternal life. What amazing promises we have. Yeah? Amen. You see, when God promises something, we can expect that he will keep that promise. And I think that might be a word for someone here today to be reminded of. You need to remember that you can trust God at his word. Numbers 23, 19, it reminds us that God is not a man like us, that he should lie, or a person that he should change his mind. The question is posed to us, has God said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? We can't answer yes to those questions because when God speaks and God says something, God will make good on what he says. This is our God, the God who promises to never leave us or forsake us. And we've got evidence in front of that, in front of us. In our Bibles, we see that the Galatian Christians are a visible sign of the promise God had made to Abraham. And you can look around you and see those innumerable people those promises, that promise made to Abraham, sat amongst us here. We are those who have been made part of the family of God. And isn't that so exciting? That connection from generation to generation. So do you know what? This morning we can trust his promise. And so Paul concludes the paragraph with this reminder that we are heirs of the promise. The promise that we'll be justified before God, have that gift of the Spirit, and that we will enjoy eternal life. And then he moves into Galatians 1-4. to 
Uh, uh, 4, 1 to 7, sorry, all these numbers all over the page. He talks about an heir, a child, a minor, someone who's yet to come of age, who's been promised so much but isn't yet allowed it. We remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke's Gospel. Who knows what he's been promised and he asks for it early and squanders it all. Okay, this is the sort of situation we're talking about. The son knows what he can have, but the father has determined the time at which the son comes of age and can have it and be trusted with it. The time hasn't yet been reached. The heir sits waiting patiently or impatiently, in the case of the prodigal son, under the authority of those who manage the estate, of those who administer the estate, waiting patiently to receive what was there. And Paul There's much debate over what he says there in verse 3. When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this this world. This waiting, he talks about, to, to receive what we've been promised as heirs, essentially seems to me that until Christ comes, humanity was just caught up in religion. It was caught up in false worship, idolatry. We were lost. We were sort of milling around. We were worshipping the created rather than the creator. And so now that Christ has come, we've been set free from that childish waiting. Jesus is here. Jesus was sent at the right time, born of a woman. We're reminded here of the humanity of Jesus in verses 4 and 5. As a human, just like us, he was subject to the law. Okay, He had to keep God's law. And unlike human beings, he was able to keep that law. He was without sin and yet took on himself the the punishment that the law required of those who break it. According to the law, he became a curse for us. Paul says he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus kept the law that we could never keep. And Jesus makes us the heirs that we don't deserve to be, but we are allowed to be because we are clothed with his righteousness. And so we are redeemed from the law. We are no longer held captive to it. We are are no longer slaves. But this isn't an excuse for us to to live sinfully, though. Okay? We still have to live according to God's word. Yeah? We can't just go, okay, we're adopted, we're heirs, it's fine. God's going to forgive us. He's forgiven us in Jesus. We must still try to to live in a way which honours God. And we are able to enjoy all this freedom from slavery to the law because we have been adopted. We're not adopted into God's family because of our education, because of our income, because of our gender, our race, our nationality, our abilities. We are adopted and we are God's children because God purposed that that would happen. He knew that he was going to make us his children. Through faith, we are made children and adopted into the family. Adoption was of particular social significance in the first century, and it still is today, really. But certainly in Paul's context, it was a culture in which if you had a daughter, you didn't want that daughter, okay? You'd put her out with the rubbish, and someone would come along and take her away and put her into slavery because she couldn't provide. She couldn't bring an income. She she wouldn't be able to have a skill. She was more trouble. She was going to be a drain on the family. And so these families wanted sons. And so to be told that if you're unwanted, there's a God in heaven who wants you, what an amazing thing to be told. Those Galatian Christians are being encouraged that even though the world might not want you, there's someone in heaven who does. And I love the image of adoption. It's something that we can so easily get our heads around. Obviously, we've got some amazing theologians in here who've got it all put together and can explain the Trinity to us. 
But isn't adoption so much easier to understand because we can see it in our own society now? But there's one major difference. Adoption now is about a a, a legal and relational change, whereas adoption into God's family is about a spiritual transformation. Okay, I don't want to repeat what Ewan said, but we are transformed from the inside out. We are being made into God's image by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And so in this adoption, we see how generous God is. He's generous because he makes good on the promise that he made to us. He justifies us and forgives us our sins. He gives us the Holy Spirit and he goes on filling us with his spirit, if only we ask. He gives us a fullness of life now and the hope of eternal life after death. I said that we shouldn't get hung up on this term, being adopted as sons, this engendered language that Paul uses. In the culture, women weren't expected to get anything. They were never going to get an inheritance. And so with Paul saying there's neither male nor female, what he's saying is the women who could never expect to get anything are now going to be treated like sons and can expect to receive everything. Hallelujah. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that those who are undeserving get what they don't deserve. Hallelujah. And so, because we are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts so that we might cry out, Abba, Father. And so many of you will have heard that that, that word Abba is like crying out, Daddy. And it's, it's not wrong, but it's an oversimplification of how much reverence there is in that word. Because yes, we have an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father, the way a child would have with their father. But this is about respect, reverence, respecting the word that the Father gives us. And this is a hard thing for us to get our heads around, because so many of us have experiences of of fathers which mar how we see our Father in Heaven. The truth is, as fathers, so here's a challenge for the men, and it's never too late to start, we should seek to father like our Father in Heaven. So that the impression our children have of God is the best one. Not the wrong way around, okay? But it's difficult to get our heads around. So we must honour the word of our Father. And this is where we don't just go, we're adopted into the family, it's okay. We respect what God says about us and, and instructs us to do. So I'd like to end with two challenges and an encouragement for you today. I think maybe there's people here who need to act with some, some sort of reverence towards God. We need to pursue holiness as Christians. We need to respect and honour what God's word says and instructs us to do. We need to honour our Father who is in heaven. But I think some of us here, also here's our second challenge, we need to know that intimacy with God in heaven as our Father. And like I've said, that's a hard thing for us to get our minds around because we might not know intimacy with our Father, our earthly Father. Maybe you've experienced the intimacy of your relationship with your Heavenly Father before, and it's been a long time since you've experienced it. Maybe you've never experienced it. Maybe you don't know God as your Father in Heaven today. I don't know. But I want to pray for you to know that intimacy, that closeness with God, because I think it changes things for us. There's real joy in that intimacy, real pleasure and love. And finally, as we've sung this morning, we are no longer slaves. We've been set free. We've been set free from living under the law. But the enemy of our souls so many times will try to persuade us that we are slaves, that we're slaves to our addictions, slaves to our fears. And we're set free from that. We are set free.
I'm going to invite the band to come back up. I'm going to lead us in a short prayer. Okay, you can lead that. Yeah, 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 sure. Shall we pray together? Loving and gracious God, we thank you that you are our Father in heaven. Thank you that you have taken us and put us into your family. That you treat us as your beloved children and that you give us the gift of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, this morning and ask that you would help us to know the intimacy that comes with being in a relationship with you. Lord, I ask that you would help us this morning to forgive our earthly fathers who might have corrupted what it looks like for us to have a father in heaven. And that you would give us the grace to forgive ourselves where we might have made mistakes as fathers. Spirit of God, would you break any hold that the enemy might have on us? Remind us, Lord, that we are not slaves. We are those who are free. We thank you, Lord, that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Fill us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit this morning so that we might cry out to you. In Jesus' name, amen.